Hey everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Broadway Talks, where I sit down with Broadway stars and discuss the magic that is theater. In this episode, I'm so thrilled to be sitting down with Melanie Chartroff, a legend in both stage and screen and soon to be published author with her memoir, Odd Woman Out, releasing February 2nd, 2021. Hi, Melanie. Hi, how are you, Ava? Good to meet you. Thank you. It's so great to meet you too. And I'm so excited to sit down and just learn everything you have to say. Oh, well, I, I uh, was a Broadway baby. I mean, I lived, dreamt, thought about Broadway ever since I decided to be an actor at the age of 12, I think. Um, I was in the audience at a repertory theater company near me in New Haven, Long Wharf Theater, a very respectable theater. And uh, one of the characters in the play uh, called Volpone walked through the audience telling us his side of the story. He was sort of the narrator. And he came to me and he looked directly into my eyes like in real life and put his hand on my cheek and continued his monologue. And that was it. I wanted to go up on the stage and join that very vivid life that was so much more colorful, I felt, than my life in a, a small town. And then I saw my first Broadway show in 1964. It was called How Now Dow Jones. This is way before your studies probably began. And it was about the, uh, the United States stock market um, had a voice of Dow Jones, a woman who was the voiced over person, was in love with the president of Dow Jones. And he said, as soon as it hits a thousand, I'm gonna marry you. This is a thousand, by the way. So one morning she's really mad at him and she just says the market just hit a thousand this morning. And um, all the songs were written about life in New York and, and uh, Dow Jones and the stock market back when there used to be a trading floor in New York, which was very exciting mm -hmm. before everything went to computer. Um, and, it, and, in, and at that moment, I said, I'm going to be on Broadway. I must be on Broadway. I must be part of this life. And fortunately, when I got out of college, I was. I was in my first Broadway show in 1972. It was called Via Galactica, Road to the Stars, and it was a rock opera, science fiction, space age, high tech kind of show. Yeah, I mean, that show was so ahead of its time. Like, it's, it was so um, almost like magical, the word is, because nothing like that had been shown to like everyone who wanted to see it. There was a period there where um, there was a revolution in musical theater. There was a show called Hair, of course, which you know about. Yeah. Uh, and they wanted to do something not so rosy-cheeked and, and, and happy, and uh, they wanted to shake things up. And then there was a show called Dude, which opened a little before us, around the same time as us, which was also very radical. Uh, Tom O'Horgan, kind of a visionary director and a bit of a pothead, uh, had taken over this <laughs> wonderful classical conventional Broadway theater and they took out all the seats and they put slopes of sand and trees and they um, converted it really into a sandlot. And that show was like a million and a quarter bust. And um, we came along around the same time and our show looked like it had everything going for it. It had an English pedigree, Peter Hall, who soon became Sir Peter Hall, uh, the yeah. head of the National Theater, he's gone now. Um, and John Burry, who was a visionary scene designer. So they made a kind of a um, a punk, steam steampunk kind of a theme for this show. It 
took place in the future, uh, probably, you know, 50 years from now. And um, it was a period where all the earthlings were controlled by wearing blue hats. So everybody on earth all had the same modulated feelings. They were controlled by the government, how they would feel. And, um, and then this, this rebel group, this renegade group, escaped to an, an outlying planet in our, in our solar system called Ithaca. And so this random group were all different colors because they hadn't sold out to the monolith of the government in, in the, in the, on, on Earth. And so they'd gone out there and they propagated and they farmed and they made a whole new clean planet on Ithaca. And I was in the first act, I was one of the blue people. And I got to have a love scene with the late wonderful Raul Julia, um, where we were just having sex with no feelings because our control hats controlled the feelings. And um, then in the next scene, I was sprayed yellow so that I went blue plus yellow equals green. So I became a green geologist on the planet of Ithaca. And um, it was very exciting, but in a short time, the chorus began to realize that the story wasn't clear because it was all sung. It's a very um, esoteric poetry and there was no written dialogue. Uh, maybe a few exclamations, that was all. But we all started to think, how are people going to understand this? It's a very simple story about the Ithacans kidnapping an earthling garbage dumping guy who's played by Raul Julia in this like Model T Ford antique car spaceship, which we pulled down with magnetic, magnetic influence and um, wanted him to mate with our queen who was a, a green character because her husband was ancient and he had sort of deteriorated into a head in a robot box that would go around on tracks on the stage. So the entire second act was about seducing Raul to mate with our queen so that we could have more of our species go on and on. And then we find out an earth crew is coming on a, on a space station to come and kidnap, kidnap Raul, take his garbage truck back and take us all back to earth. So we know we need to escape. So we build this enormous rocket ship whose tail was on the stage. It took up the entire stage. Oh, wow. And it had a, it had a fire escape, <coughs> excuse me, a fire escape kind of staircase going into it. And our finale was this song called New Jerusalem. We were going to a New Jerusalem. And so we all boarded in preview this uh, staircase and as we were singing this song and the, the producers were out in the audience, this is just before we opened, all of a sudden there was this creaking in the ceiling of the brand new Eurus Theater, the first new Broadway theater in many years. And the entire staircase pulled out of the ceiling and crashed through the stage. A lot of people were hurt. A lot of people were scared, traumatized. We had Irene Cara and Ray, uh, uh, what was his, no, Irene Cara and a whole little boy named Carter, who's on so many shows afterward uh, on television. Ralph Carter, I don't know if you know of this boy, but he was a very gifted singer and became a, a regular on a television show in Los Angeles. So um, we were lucky to have survived that. And then the show opened and everybody wanted to see it because it was such a controversial show, but it closed in like one week because they couldn't, bear the expense with such terrible reviews. The show got the worst reviews in history. And I also thought, 
I always wanted to be on Broadway and this show is so technological over, technologically overwhelming. It doesn't have a heart to it. There's so many special effects and, and no heart. So um, I was very disillusioned after that about, I, I guess I wanted to be in the old fashioned Broadway, you know, like Oklahoma and Cabaret mm -hmm. and all those wonderful shows. And this was a whole new sort of show. And then I just did a bunch of off-Broadway shows. And then the next Broadway show I got to be in was called Scapino. It was from the Young Vic in London, <clears throat> directed by their artistic director, Frank. Oh, gosh. I forgot his name. I'll have to look it up. In any case, Jim Dale, who did all the voices for the Harry Potter books, um, was our lead. <clears throat> he played Scapin, <clears throat> which is a Moliere play, The Adventures of uh, Scapin. And he's kind of a prankster and a clown. And it was a very vaudevillian kind of show. And I played, there were two women in the show. I played the one that cries all the time and another <laughs> girl played the one that laughs all the time. And that was a terrific show to be part of. Uh, and it ran at Circle in the Square for, I don't know, quite a while. And then it moved to Broadway, but I was already being brought out to Los Angeles to test for television shows. So it was best that I move on. So, um, those were my two big Broadway experiences. Are these shows that are at all familiar to you? You know, um, I have heard a lot of things about Via Galactica because it was so ahead of its time, because the concept, like it was so technologically advanced that it that nobody had ever seen anything like that before. So I've heard a lot about that show. Um, and yeah, that's why I, that was one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you today was learn everything about that. Um, so yeah, so you, yeah, sorry, go ahead. It was a very modern story. I mean, it was about, um, you know, reducing people kind of fascistically to thinking only one way. And it was about taking garbage out into space, which is about where we are right now here in 2020. So it was very much ahead of its time. It just wasn't expressed clearly enough for the audience to comprehend it. It was very esoteric. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, go on. I interrupted you several times. No, no, it's totally okay. Um, so you obviously got your start and your introduction to the world of entertainment on stage and through the stage. How did you make that transition into screen, into TV, and into voice acting like you played Dee Dee on Rugrats, which is probably one of the most famous animated shows of all time? I auditioned. What can I say? <clears throat> I auditioned for every job I ever got. And I was lucky enough to be with the William Morris Agency um, after I did Via Galactica, who began getting me work in Los Angeles. And I was doing a stand-up act. Now, the Improv Club in New York and Los Angeles was kind of the hangout for producers. Uh, so a lot of people saw me struggling with my stand-up act. I was a very feminine stand-up. There weren't that many of us. There were a lot of female stand-ups coming up in the, in the late 70s, early 80s but there weren't that many really feminine ones. Most of the women delivered like guys or like strange characters. I delivered like an ingenue and sometimes I wore a gown. I was like a queen of the prom type. So I would do a lot of different characters. And I think that's why they, they started seeing more potential for me in television monetarily than in theater. You know, in theater, very rare that you go from one show to the next. Oh Usually yeah. A couple of years before, for me at least, it was a couple of years between a, two Broadway shows and then it was a couple of years between off-Broadway shows as well. I did Do I Hear a Wall, Stephen Sondheim and 
Richard Rogers musical off Broadway. Um, and I did The Proposition, which was a musical improvisational troupe off Broadway with Jane Curtin and Fred Brandy and wonderful in innovators. And I, I auditioned for Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live in New York. This is 1975, I think. And I thought sure that I would have a crack at getting it because I was so good at creating characters. You know, I had been doing a lot of uh, improv studies in college and then in New York. Uh, we had a lunchtime group and we would perform at YMCA's when people would bring their lunch and watch us improvise and give us suggestions. And so I was very versatile. I didn't get that and I seen that seems strange to me. I'm supposed to be on a show like this. And then a few years later I was. I was on a show called Fridays, which was a, a replicant of Saturday Night Live, not the cast's idea. It was the, the ABC executives that wanted to completely clone Saturday Night Live, which was not our idea of a good time. We were all very iconoclastic, Larry David, um, Michael Richards, me. We all had our own idea of how we mm -hmm. wanted to do things. So we had to sort of start in their format. I played the newscaster, just like Jane Curtin, and honor a lot of their characters. And then slowly, once the network trusted us, we were all able to branch out and uh, do new things. So I think it's because of William Morris Agency scouting me in an off-Broadway show called Love Song that I started to get more trips to Los Angeles. Yeah. But before you said I was a Broadway star, I wouldn't say I was a Broadway star. I would say that I was part of some stellar ensembles. I didn't really have the leads in those plays. They were all you know, ensemble pieces. Yeah. Well, I mean, to me, the star is not, you know, always the lead. That's not what it always means. It's just someone who contributes to making the community what the community is. You know, that's why Broadway is so incredible is because of everyone who has been through it and will continue to go through it. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you for putting me in that category. That's really <laughs> I don't know how it's gonna shake down. I mean, all of our hearts are breaking for actors, you know, in New York who are just about mm -hmm. to crack, who are just about to star. And they're doing a lot of Zoom performances to keep themselves busy. And luckily in the archives, there are a lot of recorded musicals yeah. um, that, that uh, show us what the theater can really be like, that the way it affects the, the audiences viscerally. You know, mm -hmm. and there's an excitement in the room when you're part of a big audience. Um, and we certainly can't rep replicate that right now. It's unfortunate. A part of it is the communion of experiencing something all together, all feeling the same way. It's really a unifier. I yeah. Feel. Yep, for sure. Yeah. And um, that's what we all miss, the being in the room with somebody, intuiting what they're going to think or do next. And, you know, as actors, we always have to kind of uh, be voluntarily stupid so that no matter how many times we do a scene, we never know what's going to happen next. You know, mm -hmm. we never know uh, what someone is going to say or that they're going to break our hearts so that it has to hit us for the first time every time, even though you've been doing a show for years. Yeah. And that's one of the gifts of artists is forgetting. Um, and I miss the forgetting part as much as I, I miss the, the uh, performing <laughs> part. I totally agree. I love, I mean, it's just, there's something about it that can't be replicated in any way, shape, or form. Like you just have to be there seeing real people showing real emotion and just, yeah. I mean, there's really something so special about it. Yeah. 
So, yeah. Here's hoping it comes back. Mm -hmm. So you were obviously in the iconic Rugrats, which, I mean, even if you hadn't watched the show, even if you hadn't grown up in the time where it was huge, you know the show, you know the characters, you know, you know it. So what was it like? Well, you were there for such a long time in the show. What was it like seeing it start from something new, this new project, and suddenly grow into this worldwide sensation? It was pretty astonishing, actually. I had never done animation or even auditioned for it. And I, I had an audition at this little studio on a small street in Hollywood. Um, and I got called back. The description of the character sounded just like my mother, uh, kind of. Uh, repressed and polite and always a little bit anxious, <laughs> trying to keep control, and uh, but always kind of dizzy and daffy and um, not really on top of what's going on with her children. That was my mother to a T. <laughs> so when I went in for my first audition, I just did my mother and they really liked it. So then they brought me back for what's called a callback, you know, my mm-hmm. second try. And they had an actor I had worked with on the New Heart show named um, Jack Riley, who's a wonderful character to play Stu, and another man auditioned for the part of the grandfather. And they put us in a room with three mics and they had us improvise on a certain topic. And it said in the script that at one point, Didi gets very upset. So I was just trying to keep everything together and being very polite. And then I suddenly just lost it and screamed. And, and I think that's why I got hired to be Didi Pickles because I lost control so well. And then um, they had me audition on the telephone with the executives in New York City to play Minka, her mother, who's the grandmother of the Rugrats, the Jewish grandmother. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of a privilege because I have to say I'm a, a lapsed Jewess. I don't really know that much about my religion. I'm not a big fan of any organized religion, but I wanted to understand the culture. So becoming Minka helped me really understand my culture for the first time. And the way they drew her looked just like my late grandmother's. They, they both looked alike. They came through Ellis Island from Russia, and they both had gray buns on their heads, and they had, um, you know, uh, skirts, and then they had like those elastic stockings, and they had those shoes with the chunky heels like older people used to wear back in, you know, the 90s and the 80s and the 70s. And um, so my character, Minka, was kind of an amalgamation of everybody who worked on the show's Jewish grandmother and my two grandmas and my landlady, um, her name was Mrs. Siderman, who looked just like Minka too. There were so many women that looked like that cliche Russian character. Um, Today, people who emigrate to the United States from Russia don't look anything like that. They're all Western dressed, jeans and hip attire. But in those days, it was a traditional garb. So Mm -hmm. playing both characters was wonderful. And so the first time, we did the series. Um, we uh, didn't hear from them for about a year. Apparently, they had to draw it, and it was drawn in Korea. They did the oh, story wow. in the U.S. And even though the Koreans didn't speak English, they were able to make our mouths say American words. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. And then they invited us all back to that little building for a screening. Following year, it was about to launch on Nickelodeon. We went back. Jack and I were there together. And we saw our voices coming out of these things, these inc- incredible creatures, like my voice coming out of Dee Dee Pickles. It was just bizarre. And soon while I was watching it in that, you know, half hour maybe that we spent 
um, in the studio together, she became, became her own person. I stopped thinking, oh, that's my voice in a drawing. I was like, oh, this is like a real person. It was homogenized so well by the artists. And Jack Riley said the same thing. Um, his Stu character was like a whole other part of him, another part of his psyche, you know? Mm -hmm. So what can I say? It wasn't a big hit in the beginning. Uh, like many shows, it kind of caught on in rerun. I think it was our second year. We had put it to bed for the season. And then they told us to come back again the third year. And we did a whole bunch more shows. And then they sent us home. And then the following year, we did a whole bunch more shows. So maybe we do 13 weeks in a row. And I can't say it was hard work. We worked no more than one or two hours in the studio with terrific dialogue. We had terrific writers. And the show um, was kind of a double entendre. You know, it was amusing for kids, but parents also were in on the jokes. Um, somehow they managed to appeal to a very hip demographic. And that's why it's still popular today in rerun. Um, so it was a wonderful gift to be part of us. Very proud of it. I was loved the potty training episode. I don't know if you understand <laughs> that. Because it really was really told from a child's point of view, a little baby's point of view. I remember myself being scared of the toilet, that it was going to suck me down into this typhoon. And um, I also wondered why dogs could do it in public and pee on trees and that we could. The whole potty training thing was, I just remember physically it being so confusing to me. Um, so that was one of my favorite episodes. And they did another episode from Spike's point of view, the dog's point of view where the adults just spoke gibberish unless they were referring to him. It would be like, walk Spike, feed Spike. And um, I thought that was brilliant. And then they did another one called uh, uh, Game Show Didi, which was hosted by Alex Trebek, who just passed away last week, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, and Didi just was preparing to go on this game show and she had everybody in the family helping her until she was just waking up saying arugula in the middle of the night for no reason or, or avocado or anchovies. I mean, she just had nonsense in her head. And um, that was another of my favorite episodes. I mean, there are hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're all so like, um, memorable is the word I want to use in their own way. Like every ep like there were never any episodes that were just there for fluff. You know, every episode had a good storyline and every episode was different, but had that same energy that the everything that was about Rugrats was there in every episode, that feeling. It's amazing how creative you can get within limitations. And, oh, um, yeah. That's why I'm so excited about what this horrible limitation of the last eight months will do to artists everywhere. I'm sure some new art form will develop, mm -hmm. utilizing virtual, utilizing Zoom, but I'm sure new creativity will innovate in this time and, and generate. So I'm excited about it. But Rugrats, um, I think they have a new company starting um, January. It's gonna be very different. Characters of different ethnicities and genders. Um, I think it'll be visually a whole new way of seeing Rugrats. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you're a fan, but if you tune in, it's going to be quite different from the show we were doing for 30 years. Yeah. So now let's move on to your upcoming project, which is your memoir called Odd Woman Out. Yes. 
Yes, I'm excited about it. It, it came together rather well. These are stories over a 50-year period of time as an actor and performer trying to form an identity, a personal identity, um, and looking for love. But I was never the same person for more than a month. <laughs> I had improvised myself into this kind of liquidity where I could be just about anything anybody wanted, but I didn't really have a very strong sense of self. So this takes place over 50 years. And there's stories from my childhood, stories from my career, backstage Broadway, backstage television, my searching for a solid identity. It's funny and it's sad. And it's very frank, very racy in some places. And it's about how I finally found love and got married for the first time at 65 and now have stepkids. Yeah. I mean, I was able to get a quick like sneak peek into the book when, um, you know, I was researching all about it. Um, and I was really like stunned by how much you, you had to say about so many different things. You know, I really, I really did find it just so interesting because not everyone can be successful on stage and screen and animation and voiceover. And you were able to do it and to see how not only your career progressed, but your thought and like personality progressed with it was just amazing. That's an interesting way of saying thing, a, a thing about my success. I mean, I, that is true. I had some success in each one. Um, I never could stay still for long, you know? So that's why I think I went from one kind of in reinvention to another. And now I've reinvented myself as an author, but a lot of the stories were performed in shows uh, that were on stage. I also wrote a musical version called Odd Woman Out that was performed at the Joshua Tree Comedy Festival. And um, so I didn't just sit down and write a book. It's been kind of accumulating over the years. And um, I'm kind of proud of it. It's getting very good early reviews and it's not out till February 2nd on Amazon, but it's in pre-sale now. So people can buy a Kindle for their friend for Christmas if they want to. <laughs> And I'll be sending out autograph postcard bookmarks to people that send me proof of purchase um, to my website. Uh, so they'll have an autograph, if, you know, since we can't have a book signing in person right now. I'll be able to mail them a memento and a personalization if that's a value. Mm -hmm. So tell me why you decided to write the memoir in the first place, or when did it kind of hit you that this is what you were doing? Good question. Well, I. I was performing one of my best pieces and uh, a literary agent uh, came backstage and she said to me, you're writing a book. I said, I am. She said, yes, this is a book. This is literary. This is valuable. This is profound. And she became my agent. <clears throat> and then we just sort of shopped it around, you know, mostly to small publishers. And finally I placed it. I was able to place it and it took off just before the pandemic and began to go into publishing and having a, a design cover, a designed cover, which is a thrill and becoming real. And then I just got my first box of books the other day. And so now it's like a really real book. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I mean, how did you feel when you first got the book in your hand? Very like proud, trembly proud, you know, like it's like excited and proud. And, um, I just hope people enjoy it as much as the reviewers do. I think it kind of panders to all tastes. I really think it's um, for women who haven't married yet and are very despondent about it. 
in their older years, career women who didn't get to have children, but it's also for men because they understand the workings of a female's mind in terms of love and sexuality. And how do you think your experiences in this industry kind of shaped your thinking and shaped your idea of what to include in this memoir? Well, um, it's a really very profound question. Um, I think that because I began to become a known entity, a celebrity for a period of time, nobody knew me as myself. They knew me as this character whose name was on the screen and easily memorized. And so I became the woman on the screen for a while because I had to go on talk shows and stuff like this. And I didn't have an identity to speak from. So I became this newscaster character who was very tailored, very together, uh, intelligent and sort of vulnerable, you know, trying to hold it together. And that became my identity. I still say to myself, is this really who I am? <laughs> this, you know, fast talking, smart ass woman. Yeah, I kind of became that. All the pieces kind of came together. Of course, I still want to do all kinds of different characters. Um, but I actually had a woman self that found a man self that married. He had identity issues as well. But our oddness turned into evenness when we got married. So it's been kind of like a wonderful arrival. So the book has a pretty happy ending. We're in love in the time of COVID. Um, and I, you know, I think it's really an upbeat gift for the Valentine's Day holiday here in America. Yeah. It's very romantic at the end. It's, uh, it's fraught before the end. I mean, it's scary and it's sad and it's hilarious. I had a lot of humiliating experiences, which when I was having them, I would say to myself, I'm gonna laugh at this later and I'm gonna make other people laugh at this later. And it was, a, it was kind of a consolation. And that's you know? such a great attitude to have. I mean, it really is. Yeah. It's great material. Trauma is great material for creativity, sorry to say. Yeah. So now moving back into a little bit more of the performance-centered aspects of your life, you've done so much. You've done everything from Seinfeld to obviously like Broadway, off-Broadway, to voiceovers and animation like Rugrats. So what would you say has been your favorite area of the entertainment industry that you've been in so far and what has been your favorite project in specific that you'd love to do or you would love to do again oh, the pressure's yeah. on <laughs> i can feel it um having such a variety the common theme through all of the projects i've done is they had great writers and and they were a functional producing group the dysfunctional producing groups made every experience difficult. For example, I did a show called Fridays, and that was a very dysfunctional producing team. There were drug addictions, there was a, a death, there was just a lot of horrible stuff behind the scenes. So being funny on the screen, although it led to my becoming well-known, um, was difficult. It was a very, very stressful experience, the Fridays show. And people, you know, really loved it. It had its cult following. Um, I'd say Parker Lewis Can't Lose was the healthiest thing I did in television uh, on camera because it was a very functional group of men running the show. 
wasn't a completely chauvinistic bunch of guys. They were very in touch with the feminine. So they gave my character, who is this uh, harridan principal at high school, a very controlling woman, they gave me a lot of leeway uh, to self-ridicule. And so that was a very healthy television experience. Rugrats, of course, was, I've done a lot of other cartoons, but Rugrats was the primo cartoon experience. Of course. My best, my best theater experience was something a lot of people didn't get to see, uh, at least with, when I was in it. It was a musical called March of the Falsettos, now become Falsettos. But when I did, it was called March of the Falsettos. And I played the, the wife to a man who's gay, who's actually in love with uh, another, his best friend who would take it into the house. And so I'm having a nervous breakdown all through the show. And the music was so wonderful. And the guys that I work with were so terrific. Um, and James Lapine was the director who's directed so many, many Broadway shows. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. Assassins and Passion and all that. Um, I have to say that was a gem of a role for me. And a really, uh, that was a peak experience. Although we were in a, you know, a, a Los Angeles theater that <laughs> only sat about 300 people. That was peak. Not that many saw, saw it, but my friends saw it, and a lot of people still come up to me and say, I'll never forget you in that show. Uh, that song, I'm Breaking Down, uh, was classic, you know, and I really tore up the scenery with it. I really had a great mm -hmm. time. It's on SoundCloud if anybody wanted to hear the breakdown number. Somebody recorded it in the theater, which is illegal, and gave it to me later. <laughs> so that was my peak experience, Marshall Falsettos. Mm -hmm. um, Galactica, though, it was a sensationalistic experience in terms of it being a Broadway and so expensive and, and so clever. So final question now. Do you have any advice for people who want to be where you are today or as somebody who wants to create a smooth transition between all the different fields of the performing arts that there are? Well, it's, it's, you have to be a visionary to imagine what's next for, for young actors. <clears throat> I gave a, a commencement speech to the graduates of my theater, uh, my, my college's theater department. And I said, we had access to New York City from that campus, which was wonderful. And I said, well, now that you can't go into theater, you can't take the train in to see theater, you will be creating it. And you have much more technological know-how than we did when we graduated. Um, and I can't imagine the kind of 3D hologram, the kind of um, games that you guys will invent, the, the uh, body motion capture, emotional body motion capture things that you're going to create virtually, the uh, special effects with the humanity at the base of those special effects that you will invent in years to come. I'm excited about what you graduates are going to do. You can't lament what's gone or temporarily gone. You can only, you know, create yes and as an improv. Yes, we're in a play. Yes, uh, the world is in a climate shift of, of uh, confusing results. Yes, there's all that going on. And I still have this yearning, this wish, this gift that I know is given to me for a reason. And I'm going to find a place that's appropriate to share that with the world or just one other person. Sometimes it can be mm -hmm. just sharing it with one other very important person. Yeah. I mean, that's so great. I mean, that makes so much 
sense and yeah, very, very wise. Well, I hope I've earned something by this age. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So we've unfortunately come to the end of what I would personally say was a conversation that I, I really, really enjoyed. I mean, it was so incredible learning about everything you have to say in your in your life, which has been so unique and so admirable. So thank you so much for joining me today, Melanie. And don't forget that on February 2nd, 2021, you can get Odd Woman Out on Amazon and anywhere you get your book. So go check it out because I know you all will love it. So thank you everyone for tuning in and don't forget to check out future episodes of Broadway Talks airing every Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Stay safe, everyone. Bye.